Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Well, first of all, we got some boppin' new intro, extended music, so thank you again, Josh. And speaking of bops, you know who we'll be seeing tomorrow, right? Um, of course, yes, Miss Lady Gaga. I cannot wait to watch her save America once again. But until then, we've got a great episode for you all today, comparing images from the plague, the Spanish flu, and now COVID-19. That's right. So we'll go over a little medical art history and hopefully once again discover that the arts and sciences are ever more essential to one another. Hey girl. Hey girl. How you doing? I'm good. I'm really looking forward to inauguration day this week and hopefully Lady Gaga will just give me a great performance where no one's lives are endangered. Um, everyone's lives are just made better. So that's what I'm hoping for. Oh my for. gosh. Absolutely. Can't wait to bow down to my queen. Truly. Once again. She's, she's the real president getting inaugurated. Let's be real. <laughs> Kind of speaking of just about, like, music, Bianca, I need an update as to what you're listening to lately, what's the playlist, what gets you pumped for your day, gets you through your workouts, I need to know. (laughs) Well, during my workouts this week, I've actually been on, like, a really big Nicki Minaj kick because I'm just on full-on Nicki TikTok, and it sparked a little workout mode for me, but... Also, the 3435 remix came out the other day with Meg and Doja Cat. And for a remix, I actually really like it because I tend to not like remixes so much, but mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. So that's what that's what was I, on my release radar this week. I haven't listened to that yet. I need to. But we have yet to just also discuss like the post-humanism in the 3435 music video. Oh, that's that's a really good point. Okay, But I had ulterior motives for asking you this question because I've been feeling (laughs) like a a fool lately. (laughs) Because like a fool, like a fool. (laughs) Nothing is getting me pumped like the Bridgerton soundtrack. (laughs) I have thoughts about the show of course in general you know it's fine but the music uh sister like songs that I didn't even like before like girl like you and in my blood like I just am not like a fan of those songs but now they hit like so different and it's hot as hell yeah so (laughs) I'm just saying that if I don't hear these vitamin string quartet bops when we're able to go back to the club again, I'm just, I'm going to be pissed. So, yes, no, I totally agree. Actually, you know, what I need to do is make a playlist of all the unusual bops that I want to hear at the club. I want to hear, like, the SNL skit song with Pete and Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I don't hear that the second I walk into the club, like, I not going to be well but I (laughs) I totally understand because when they played it in the show so uh, yeah I did watch the show I was kind of like oh that's cute like thank you thanks but then Gianna you told me to listen to the soundtrack Mm -hmm. and girls like you I I actually I really don't like that song but then in in the like Bridgerton soundtrack it's so good it's so good I know and I've been working out to it and like I don't know it just gets me pumped (laughs) I don't know what to say about that I'm really happy um, for you I'm I'm glad we're on the same page about it a little bit totally in regards to the music so besides that Bianca I have to ask if you have watched the history of swear words yet I have yet to watch, but I need the tea on History of Swear Words, Gianna, because I just truly don't know if I actually have the strength to watch. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a really quick watch, so I thought I'd give it a go. And overall, I did like the historical and contemporary attachments and progressions of how swear words developed, their significant impact in pop culture, and of course, how they are being used now. 
all fun stuff. Mm. I was curious to watch it as well because I actually learned a lot about the significance of swear words at my last job. I was working in a retirement community and memory care facility there for a little bit right out of college. And I was pretty much working exclusively with folks in memory care who had different forms of dementia. Mm -hmm. In going through some training and experiencing this in real life, especially when interacting with people who have very advanced forms of dementia that you would kind of think of as a very classic case, this would really surprised me when they would curse. Mm. These are people who still use appropriate inflections in their voice when talking, but they don't remember words. So instead, it sounds a lot like the same word being repeated over and over again Mm -hmm. or sound being repeated until something happened and I made them laugh unexpectedly or they'd just be cute and embarrassed by something Mm -hmm. or maybe they like bumped their elbow yeah and all of a sudden it would be shit that hurt or oh shit Mm. and it's communicated as clear as day and it's honestly so wild they inform you about these types of behaviors and the psychology behind them um you know when you work in this kind of facility Mm -hmm. so swear words are memorable because they release adrenaline that is really interesting yeah so Going back to the show, the guest speakers were mostly comedians, which makes sense, of course. There's a lot of humor when discussing this topic, but there is that freedom of speech aspect and the challenge of censorship that comedians are pioneering in. Mm. They bring on lexographers and professionals that study linguistics and cognitive scientists, which was really insightful. But one of the speakers they brought on was a professor of feminist studies who had an emphasis in sexuality and race. And they don't bring her on till we discuss swear words associated with gender, starting with bitch, then dick, and then pussy. And that's when we start talking about the reclamation of it all for women and the gay community. I liked how they talked about consent and how understanding semiotics are key in how to use these words like mm-hmm. bitch and that understanding should be applied you know before using any type of gendered swear mm-hmm. and that is because everyone will have a favorite swear word and everyone will have a word that they are still sensitive about especially in a time when words are being reclaimed The most complex conversation, I think, was the word pussy because Mm -hmm. we do still have that internal conflict amongst people with vaginas and feminists. Yeah. But then we get into the dick of it all, which is... No, exactly. ...an interesting word because it's the only swear word in which people are also named after. Oh, yeah. The humor in this episode was based around the simple dick joke, but this time it was the Nick joke from our lovely narrator, Nicolas Cage. (laughs) And something about Nicolas Cage joking about wishing and wanting dicks to be called Nick's, I get it. It pokes fun at the dick joke in itself, but also reinforces the cringy masculinity of it all Mm. which was a little bit of a no for me but that is the point of the episode and they do like make it like a a point to like poke fun out but it is just (laughs) it is just cringy I I don't know what to say other than that Mm. so that's all to say have it on in the background it's a really fast watch but I think dedicating a little bit of time to talk about this would be helpful in the context of a podcast that you listen to by two women who have and will continue to use types of you know swear words on the pod yeah no actually that that's a good point and this is good to know I feel I definitely feel a little more enticed to watch now and I'm not sure why or I don't know if it's right but I feel like my language has gotten way worse over the past Mm. few years. And, like, I'm not really sure how I feel about my own censorship because I want to be respectful of other people and I never want to use language that isn't appropriate or that hurts other people. But at the same time, it's weirdly, like, 
maybe for the worse, becoming part of my everyday use rather than to emphasize a point or my emotions. Or maybe it's just that my emotions are like always on edge right now. So I don't know. (laughs) But we were also just kind of talking about this last week too, how we need to be conscientious of both words and images. And I certainly want to be conscientious of, of my words as well. And Originally, we tried to hold back with our language on the show, too. So I'm kind of curious what everyone thinks now that we're, you know, like 40 episodes in or whatever. This would be a good question for the Facebook group, I think, (laughs) to see how what what preferred language is and if it is ever, you know, bothering anyone just to let us know. Yeah. So, bitch, what's our news for today? (laughs) Well, today's art news. It's a little bit late, but we've been so busy. We haven't been able to talk about this really cool thing that happened in Pompeii and how last month archaeologists uncovered an ancient snack bar. And honestly, middle schoolers wish their snack bar was this cool. I know I certainly did. I would much rather have like all this cool stuff rather than pop chips at my snack bar. You so, wouldn't want a good uncrustable. Oh, I love uncrustables. Wait, no, I want. <laughs> I, I fucking love <laughs> uncrustable sandwich. Oh my god, they're disgusting and delicious, and I'm not ashamed. <laughs> Okay, so thanks. why does our show revolve around like prepackaged food? <laughs> That's a good point. But I love, you know what? I made a really cute TikTok about putting barbecue chips on your peanut butter jelly sandwich. And like oh, that yeah. is a, a culinary masterwork if I've ever known one. So, yeah, you know, totally. I, yeah, like I can make a delicious tart, I can make a delicious PBJ. Totally. I agree. But sometimes at the snack bar, you need your (laughs) Uncrustable. (laughs) So thanks to continual excavations in Pompeii, white wine with crushed fava beans and a soupy concoction of snails, sheep, and fish, mmm, delicious, are (laughs) revealed to have been (laughs) the meal of choice at an uncovered street food stand in the city. The stand is also referred to as a thermopolium. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, a thermopolium is a cook shop, literally a place where something hot is sold. And it was a commercial establishment where it was possible to purchase ready-to-eat food, just like a street vendor. Two years after it was partly unearthed, archaeologists began to excavate the interior of the shop um, this past October, and in December, they found food and drink residue that is expected to provide new clues about the ancient population's culinary tastes. So we generally know that Pompeii is the city destroyed by Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE, An excavation of the city actually started in 1748. About 80 thermopolia have been found at Pompeii, where residents could choose their meals from containers um, that were set into these like street front counters. So this may be the type of image that you've been seeing go around where we have... um, we're, we're shown this very colorful counter with bowls or these like curvatures in the top of the countertop itself that would have acted as like a warm serving platform. On this newly unveiled counter, we see frescoes on the front facade depicting a duck, a rooster, and a dog on a leash, which could give us even more hints as to what was being served. Archaeologists, this is my favorite part, also uncovered a vessel that would have been filled with wine, which like may not be a surprise, but they said that the vessel was so well-preserved that they could smell the residue of the wine through their masks, which is pretty cool Like that they uncovered this vessel and then could smell some ancient wine. So if you want to see a little bit more about 
the counter. I've added a little video for you under our art news playlist on YouTube as well. I can't get over how vibrant the colors and images in the frescoes are, or what I'm assuming to be a fresco um, alongside the front of the snack bar. That is truly incredible, and the images are really beautiful. And I think there was also a nymph on one of the other Uh sides. Yeah, there was. You can see that pretty well in the video on our playlist, but they it's like this bright colored yellow and it's so well preserved i mean the like you said like the saturation of that it looks even better than something we would see like in a you know like from the renaissance like at a Mm -hmm. cathedral or something it's really stunning and then also a little bit before this they just discovered two new bodies i believe yes they did a presumable like lord and servant person yeah i saw that they i didn't read about who who they thought they might be but i saw that two uh well-preserved bodies were also uncovered so it's really cool well shall we get into today's art pop talk we will be discussing the history of previous plague art versus contemporary works and experiences we are seeing in the midst of this covid19 pandemic Looking at the evolution of masks associated with diseases and the visual and written documentation of medical history, discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic compares to our understanding of past historical events. Okay, my beautiful little tartlets. As per usual, I'm going to give a little historical synopsis. And throughout this discussion, we'll be kind of ping-ponging back and forth a bit to think about comparisons of previous pandemics culture to our current state, specifically examples from the Middle Ages, the Spanish flu of 1918, and for our purposes today, also the AIDS epidemic, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. And you might also be thinking of references not mentioned in this episode, I mean, as we were prepping for this it's just one of those moments where you're seeing all these puzzle pieces kind of come together so perfectly that illustrates how history and art history really scarily repeats itself to get started we are taking it back to the byzantine empire around 542 ce Those of you art history folks might remember Emperor Justinian and more importantly, his badass wife, Theodora. I'll say it again. We've got to get an episode ready on Theodora. Justinian rebuilt the Hagia Sophia and had some beautiful, stunning mosaics that I really want to go see commissioned in Ravenna at San Vitale. Well, Justinian, I did not know this, was also a survivor of the earliest outbreak of the Pubonic Plague. This conveniently became known as the Plague of Justinian. And in the spring of 542, the plague arrived in Constantinople, working its way from port city to port city, and then spread around the Mediterranean Sea. It later migrated inland and eastward to the Asia Minor and then west to Greece and Italy. The plague of Justinian is said to have been completed, quote unquote, in the 8th century. Because this infectious disease spread inland by the transferring of merchandise through Justinian's effort in acquiring luxurious goods of the time and then exporting supplies, his capital became the leading exporter also of the plague. So a Byzantine scholar known as Procopius in his work Secret History declared that Justinian was, quote, a demon of an emperor who either created the plague himself or was being punished for his sinfulness. I mean, it's really either or. It really is either or. And I'm kind of like inclined to the former. So thanks a lot, (laughs) Justinian. (laughs) Numbers um, are hard to gauge at this early stage, but it's kind of estimated that there's uh, 25 million people who died during this first occurrence. The second pandemic or the Black Death erupted then in 1347. And, like, I just feel like you can't help but say, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. 
Gianna, I don't think she understands what that's from. Are you serious? I was like, is that a Monty Python thing? Yes. I was like cracking up thinking about it. And when they, he puts them all in the wheelbarrows. I know. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll send you a clip, Gianna. We'll post a little clip on her. No, I know what it is. It's just like gross. <laughs> The late Middle Ages experienced the deadliest disease outbreak in history when the Black Death, a pandemic of the bubonic plague, killed one-third of the European human population. Notably, during the Middle Ages, the effects of such a large-scale shared experience on the population of Europe clearly influenced poetry, prose, stage works, music, and, of course, artwork. This can be seen in figures such as Chaucer, Boccaccio, and Petrarch, and artists also such as Holbein, who you may remember from our Royals episode. Contemporary reports of the time tell of mass burial pits dug in response to the large numbers of dead, Before 1350, there were 170,000 settlements in Germany, but by 1450, 100 years later, this number dropped by nearly 40,000 due to the plague. So what Gianna and I are looking at now is a detail of a miniature from the Chronicles of Gilles Lemoussi. Gilet wrote two Latin chronicles dealing with the history of the world spanning from its creation up through 1349, and then it was later expanded by another writer to encompass 1352. And so These chronicles are notable for containing also the history of northern France and Flanders in the first half of the 14th century, documenting the plague. In Tournai, where he lived as an abbot, and of course in many other places, the Black Death caused a religious reformation. Because the plague was seen as a punishment of God for the sins of humanity, these authorities issued regulations to ban everything that was regarded as sinful. In this miniature from his chronicles, we see how the citizens of Tournai were burying their dead in masses. And there are 15 mourners, and we see nine coffins that are all kind of crammed into this small space. And interestingly, the face of each mourner is given an individual attention and expression, which not to say is completely uncommon, but in the Middle Ages, we do kind of see this repeated stacking of very similar kind of expressionless figures. So seeing each of them in this very, like, expressionistic manner appearing with, like, a lot of sorrow and I, I would say a little bit of fear is, is interesting. So I kept seeing this image pop up when we were prepping for the episode. And I think the reason why is that kind of obvious connection to our current images of, of those types of mass graves, right? Or And, like, the other day on the news, they were showing those big kind of you know, 40-foot whatever shipping containers that are just filled with bodies because medical teams can't store them in in the proper spaces right now. Yeah. Also, when looking at this image, I really find the perspective interesting. Mm -hmm. We know that there are are some issues with the foreground. You know, it's not a a perfect perspective drawing. Yeah. Very common for the era. But – when it recedes into the foreground, like this is showing a, a narrative and a mm-hmm. progression of a story. And um, I don't know, it's a little bit unusual mm-hmm. in that manner, just in the way that it's, it's kind also, of in individualized uh-huh. thinking about the facial expressions, the unique poses of each person, and then also just the narrative and the perspective of it all. So it's just it's also not surprising that you kept coming across it as well, because I do think this is all around a very highly unique image for the era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and coming from, you know, the Chronicles of an Abbot, taking a, another look at this, it's also interesting that, like, we're not seeing a ton of religious 
iconography mm, yeah. in it as well. Like it is clearly uh, a disease that that impacts everyone, and 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 you know, in society there may have been that kind of social repercussion and and that fear of sin and and connection to a religious space. But it's interesting that the image doesn't necessarily convey that right away yeah so i wanted to quickly talk about a third outbreak also known as the modern pandemic which spread the disease to port cities throughout the world in the second half of the 19th and then early 20th century via shipping routes the plague infected people in chinatown in san francisco from 1900 to 1904 and also nearby in Oakland and the East Bay again from 1907 to 09. During that first outbreak in 1900 in San Francisco is when authorities made the Chinese Exclusion Act actually permanent. This law was originally signed into existence by President Chester A. Arthur in 1882. The Chinese Exclusion Act was supposed to last for 10 years, but was renewed in 1892 with the Geary Act and subsequently made permanent in 1902 during the outbreak of the plague in Chinatown, San Francisco. And we'll circle back to this point after our break later on in the episode, but I bring up this third spread of the plague to have us start thinking about xenophobia and how that extension is very much present in our current state and the last major outbreak in the united states occurred in los angeles in 1924 though the disease is still present in wild rodents and can be passed to humans that come in contact with them according to the world health organization the pandemic was considered active until 1959 when worldwide casualties dropped to 200 per year Bianca, I remember when I came to visit you in New Mexico when you were living with Olivia Huffstetter, um, who we had on the podcast last week, and there was a plague warning, and I believe they were saying it was being carried by dogs or something. Yeah, no, I I remember being actually terrified that I was going to get the plague. (laughs) Yeah, when I lived in Santa Fe, we got an actual warning from, like, the state it was like a warning on my phone that was like look out the plague is in your area (laughs) i was like what look out so yeah that's real fun good mom so base yeah basically the black death was more than just a medieval current so you can still you can still get it today and you know the plague became a regular part of everyday life in europe after the middle ages with outbreaks like periodically devastating cities a quote from daily art says look at it this way the whole story of europe between the 14th to the late 17th century was constantly marked by the plague sounds lovely some great artists probably including hans holbein and titian most likely died of the plague meanwhile others tried to find it within art, including Tintoretto, and he painted one of his greatest works in the Scuola Grandi di San Rocco in Venice, which is a building dedicated to a plague protective saint. Death from the plague was a regular part of human life at the time, so in thinking about what's become a regular part of life, let's think about what you do when you leave your home every day, cell phone, wallet, mask, Gianna's going to talk about the thing we're all carrying these days. On that note, absolutely. I would like to offer a little comparison between doctors or healthcare workers' uniforms in relation to the well-known attire of a plague doctor. Taking the etching from artist Paulus I of Nuremberg, which depicts Dr. Schnabel von Rum from 1656. In this etching, we see a protective costume used in France and Italy in the late 17th century. It terrified people because it was a sign of intimate death. It consisted of an ankle-length overcoat, a bird-like beaked mask, along with gloves, boots, and a wide-brimmed hat, and another over-clothing garment. 
The mask had glass openings in the eyes and a curved beak-shaped face with straps that held the beak in front of the doctor's nose. The mask also had two small nose holes and a type of early respirator which held sweet or strong-smelling substances, usually lavender. The beak could also hold dried flowers, herbs, spices, or a vinegar sponge too. The purpose of the mask was to keep away bad smells known as miasma, which were thought to be the primary cause of the disease spreading from a form of bad air, also known as night air. The theory held that the epidemics were caused by miasma emanating from rotting organic matter. Germ theory, of course, later disproved this. That's wild. I didn't know that's why those beak masks were shaped like that. Well, I remember going to the Renaissance Fair in Kansas City and that, like, actor with a doctor's mask kept, like, following us around. Oh, I forgot about that. So what medical attire are we used to seeing in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic? Referred to as PPE or personal protective equipment, we still see a type of robe or garment. We have gloves, a mask, of course, a face shield or goggles. In this day and age, I think one of the most interesting visual documentations we have at this time are from healthcare workers themselves. Mm -hmm. Having access to technology, we are able to see what these frontline workers are experiencing both with a mask on and with a mask off. In the safety of private areas, workers have lifted their protective gear to show us how the attire creates scarring or irritation on their faces over time. And I think here in lies the main differences between the documentation of plague doctors and COVID-19 healthcare workers, which is the idea of humanism. Taking this etching, for example, it's not common that we would have ever seen the human face under a plague doctor's mask. Mm. But they draw these people to almost purposely make them look creepy. Their stance is very posed and in this image the doctor is very stiff and has his arms out and their gloves appear to make their fingers look really pointy and and weird Mm -hmm. and that further dehumanizes that person underneath on the other hand if there's anything we have absorbed from the documentation of COVID-19 through these shared images sourced from the workers themselves heartfelt and thankful commercials or advertisements and the absorbent amount of art that we have seen through fine art and memorials to public art or street art it's that frontline workers are not only heroes but they are humans working tirelessly to help other humans yeah absolutely they're they're working so hard to help all of us so everybody mask up it's honestly the least that you could do Before we break, I want to talk about what almost killed Edward Cullen before Carlisle saved him, which is the Spanish influenza. We've been... (laughs) I'm so sorry. I did not know that you were going to use that reference. I'm sorry. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So we've been hearing a lot about the flu of 1918 in comparison to covid and before this, really, I, I didn't know that many artists I, I thought I knew a lot about were impacted by it. Trevor Smith, a curator at the Peabody Essex Museum and a co-curator of an exhibition on the Spanish flu held last year at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, said, quote, If you close your eyes, the iconography doesn't immediately flood over you in the way that it does with war or other historical events. Millions of people lost their lives around the world, and it's hard to even wrap your head around that, he says. There haven't been many monuments or memorials to the people who died in that pandemic. However, Edvard Munch, known for his painting The Scream, created a self-portrait after the Spanish flu in 1919, which captures the artist's isolation in a domestic space, which also feels very relevant to us. And he's looking out at the viewer with his very, like, hallowed face, hallowed expression. Munch actually survived the flu, but Gustav Klimt did not. Klimt's face was sketched by Egon Chalet 
on his deathbed in 1918. Chalet also did not survive the flu, who in 1918, his portrait, The Family, was a future version of himself and his wife with the child that they were expecting, and it turned out to be the last of his images created. His pregnant wife died later that fall, three days before the painter did. I had no idea. I am an actually uh, a fan of Egon Chalet's work. I think his images are so interesting as kind of a, a grotesque painter. Mm-hmm. I tend to really gravitate towards his images. I just, I think they're so striking and his bodies are are so interesting. You know, his bodies, and especially in this painting, The Family, weirdly kind of remind me of like a grotesque version of Toulouse-Lautrec's figures. Mm -hmm. Like they, Mm -hmm. I I don't know what, they have like a similar sketch quality and like a similar kind of, uh, I don't know, weight to them or something that, that like I, they remind me a lot of each other for some reason. Yeah, I can see that. All right, everybody, we are going to take a little break. And when we come back, we will be discussing modern forms of medical visual documentation and look at how this age of social distancing has shaped the way that we interact with works of art. back everyone i really wish we could play some gray's anatomy intro music while (laughs) (laughs) you were all taking your little break but alas you'll just have to imagine the song whilst we discuss not gray's anatomy the show but gray's anatomy the book do 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 please plunky music (laughs) So because Bianca walked us through early forms of medical documentation and text, I thought it would be prudent to talk about a familiar medical book, what is now titled Gray's Anatomy, but was first published under the title of Anatomy, Descriptive, and Surgical. Written by the medical student Henry Gray and illustrated by Henry Van Dyke Carter, Gray's Anatomy was meant to be a medical textbook for students studying surgery in 1858 in England. Hmm. When first released, there were mixed reviews about this book. Some found it really groundbreaking, like the British Medical Journal. Others found it an unphilosophical combination between traditional and modern forms of thinking. Medicine in England during this time is quite fascinating because you have changes in laws, such as the implication of the Anatomy Act of 1832. This gave freer license to medical students and teachers to practice human dissection, whereas Mm. before there were a lot of sketchy things happening in order to study human anatomy, such as grave robbing or selling the deceased like on the DL. But, (laughs) sorry. I like that. But now we have this act, and Gray benefited from it and was a registered professional. But you also have these values that are controlled by the state and the church. If you wanted to study medicine, you would also have to prove that you were a practicing member of the Church of England. So my understanding is that perhaps the criticism of the textbook came from this traditional mindset and one that was probably closely tied with religion. Hmm. The second edition of Grey's Anatomy was released in 1861 and coincidentally was also the same year that Grey died from smallpox after receiving it from his nephew, who he was treating at the time. 
both him and Carter died from infectious diseases. Carter lived a bit longer, but died from tuberculosis in 1897. There hasn't been a year since its inception that this textbook hasn't been published. This fascination with the book is because of its historical and medical significance, but also just because of the aesthetics of the book. Mm -hmm. The type of detailed and illustrative style that Carter evokes, it's still one that I think is cultivated and replicated by artists today. Yeah. It evokes this vintage form of drawing that people seem to really like aesthetically and put it on display for aesthetic purposes. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, my interest gravitates towards the works that Henry Carter created for Gray. For not that much money, I just might add, Gray totally snubbed him in the beginning of their little partnership. So I just felt like huh. wanted to put that out there. Justice but for the, justice for Carter. <laughs> yeah, really. And he got the last laugh apparently too. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but this just really relates back to my fascination with the body. And because of the ways in which medicine, anatomy, surgery, and diseases are documented. And there are a lot of different branches we could go from here. We could talk about Thomas Aiken's gross clinic painting done in yeah. 1875, which depicts a surgery taking place in Jefferson Medical College's surgical amphitheater. And this is known as one of the most famous American paintings ever. And it's yeah. of a surgery. We Oh, yeah, that's interesting to think about mm -hmm. we could even elaborate on past discussions about world's body exhibition we could talk about the still prevalent profession of being a medical illustrator and how it has transformed from two-dimensional graphics to the use of animation yeah that's cool and that Gianna kind of leads me to think about like the the origins i guess of medical illustrations and not that he was necessarily the first to do it but i think that kind of classic example going back to the the renaissance leads to leonardo da vinci and even though his his drawings turned out not to be very accurate especially you think of mm -hmm. the like the pregnant oh god the, like the, the pregnancy the, like the layers in like I know the it freaks skin me out. that he draws it's so weird I'm like what are those layers in there like, I don't know honestly I wouldn't know I wouldn't know <laughs> um anyway my knowledge of my own body is not high so whoa uh -oh. <laughs> should see a doctor about it. So, but yeah, I was just thinking about Leonardo da Vinci's study of anatomy and how he was able to kind of procure those cadavers and how he was kind of able to perform these these autopsies in his studio. And also da Vinci on top of that was interested in plants and, and foliage. And there's also lots of photography and drawing I think that goes back to that same aesthetic that you were talking about Gianna this kind of like minimalist mm -hmm. drawing aesthetic of plants and herbs and how also that that type of drawing also has a connection to medical diaries and and chronicles and medieval texts as well so yeah for sure but I wanted to transition to art associated with this pandemic that we are all experiencing and that's because this conversation about medical illustration will lend itself so well when discussing art in the age of COVID. Medical illustrations have served as this base to branch out and document human conditions and experiences and interests and theories. That's also where we find these cross disciplines of medicine, science, art, design, visual technology, media techniques like all not new information and all of those intersections function through theories related to communication and learning and that's what we are seeing in these types of pandemic art forms we are trying to communicate what we are going through personally psychologically but in the future each work will serve as this record and this moment in time that we will look back on one day just as we are looking back on 
the documentation from the plague, Spanish influenza, or the AIDS epidemic. Right. Gianna and I read this New York Times article called What Can We Learn from Art of Pandemics Past? And this is by Megan O'Grady and was published last April. But I wanted to read some quotes from it because this writer just so eloquently describes this this thread that has really moved throughout our histories, which is what Gianna and I kind of wanted to piece together for today's episode. She uses Susan Sontag's essay, Illness, as metaphor from 1978, writing that Sontag warned us of thinking about and describing illness metaphorically, inspired actually by her own experience with cancer, and then wrote a follow-up essay in 1989 called AIDS and Its Metaphors. In both essays, this is a quote from O'Grady, quote, She addresses the punitive charge we bring to the language we use to describe certain sicknesses and how we ascribe a moral laxity to those who suffer from them. For Sontag, the very word plague is a distortion suggesting a kind of biblical judgment on society. Illness, she explains, comes to stand for the fears of the day. In the case of the AIDS epidemic, which killed 18,000 people in the United States alone, It was the fear of sex, particularly a fear of homosexuality. The early days of COVID-19, quote-unquote, the China virus, as our xenophobic president has called it, dovetailed neatly with one of Trump's favorite tropes of fear of immigrants and foreigners. Metaphors have a way of depersonalizing and dehumanizing. And yet metaphors also help us to envision abstract ideas. Albert Camus, The Plague from 1947, Jose Saramago, Blindness, 1995, and more recently, Ling Ma Severance from 2018, have all used contagion as a metaphor for the irrevocable infectiousness of repressive groupthink. For those of us finding it hard not to think of COVID-19 as a judgment on American arrogance, it is a metaphorical ready-made. So I just, I don't know, I was pretty taken aback reading that paragraph in this article. And Gianna's going to link all this for you on our resources page. And I, I just, I really highly recommend reading this from her. It's, it's really fantastic. Yeah. And I loved what she mentioned about the dehumanizing of it all Mm -hmm. and and also just addressing that our language that we use is so tightly connected to religion and just and xenophobia and and, fear and yeah and I, i just really important things to be aware of so of course this pandemic has changed all of us everything in every way and art is no exception to that As this same article states, the pandemic will change the way we see art forever. Just by taking our doctor's mask, for instance, again, we now have a greater understanding of these past documented lived experiences. But the pandemic hasn't just changed the ways we interpret works of art, but how we interact with them physically. Art in the age of social distancing lends itself oddly so well to installation art Mm. and is a perfect experiential metaphor for how we are currently existing. For instance, Flatiron Plaza in New York unveiled an installation the week of Christmas called Point of Action. The public art piece invites New Yorkers to contemplate connections with each other amid the COVID-19 pandemic and to move forward together. Designed by Nina Cook and John of Studio Cook John, Point of Action is a part of the 23 Days of Flatiron Cheer campaign to support local businesses in the Flatiron and Nomad district. Hmm. The interactive piece provided, quote, multiple opportunities for connections with fellow viewers and with past buyers while maintaining a safe social distance. Six-foot circles affixed onto the flat iron public plazas create nine spotlights, each with its own vertical metal frame. Ropes weave through each frame and part, 
like a curtain figuratively pulling aside to make room for the viewer to take the spotlight, connect with other viewers across the plazas, and take action as they move out and beyond. I loved this example and I think it's a good note to end on for today because we talk about how art is one of you know, the most incredible social ways of communicating. And Mm -hmm. when respecting the process and intent of the installation, I feel as though this does prove that we can still have these types of meaningful and safe interactions with art. And just another reason also why public art is so important and what has been taking place to help um, provide and maintain support for your local community as well. Yeah. Totally. Well, Gianna, do you have anything else to add before we head out today? We, like, ping-ponged all over the place. We We did. pinpointed on a lot of topics associated with disease. There was so much that we didn't talk about. Of course. Um, You know, a lot of – I was thinking about through a lot of this, too, when I was taking my entomology class and – we were talking about warfare and how disease was used mm. through wars and people would literally like drop bombs full of fleas. Oh gosh. And it it's really quite um just horribly horribly fascinating <laughs> and yeah. awful. So th- there's so much that we we haven't talked about, but I, I think this was an incredibly interesting and of course prevalent episode for us to do. Yeah, I'm glad we finally did it. I was kind of hesitant just because, I don't know, it's it's hard to gauge how people are, are feeling in this state, you know, Yeah, if, if we've had enough of those kind of hard images to look at. But hopefully this was uh, a good reminder of, of some good things we can do to to be reminded of, of history and uh, yeah. and those visuals that we take in. Don't forget that next week we will be talking about auctions and the art market. If you're in our Facebook group, PA Audrey left a little homework assignment for you all listening to a podcast about these black hole art spaces where taxes for the rich don't exist. And we'll also be talking (laughs) about (laughs) the 2018 documentary, The Price of Everything, which is available for free with HBO Max. So if you can also watch that before you listen to next week's episode we would recommend it and audrey is putting all of this information together for you in our monthly newsletter so if you haven't signed up for that yet you'll get a heads up on all the different episodes and topics we'll be talking about in the coming month so with that i think we'll talk to you on tuesday bye everyone bye Art Pop Talks production assistant is Audrey Kaminsky. Music and sounds by Josh Turner. Photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.